We turn this morning to the book of Second Chronicles chapter 7 as we continue speaking about this promise that God had given Solomon after Solomon had built and prayed and consecrated the temple that if God's people find themselves in captivity, if they find themselves under the chastening rod of God, if there's a pandemic, if there's a plague, if there's a famine, if there's a drought, if there's a dearth in the land, that if this happens, Solomon begs God, Lord, if they come into your house and they pray, or if they're in captivity and they turn towards your house and they pray, Lord, hear from heaven, forgive their sin, and heal their land. And as you know, God comes to Solomon by night in Second Chronicles chapter 7 and verse 13. And God says to him, If I shut up heaven that there be no rain, or if I command the locusts to devour the land, or if I send pestilence among my people. And again, the word pestilence there means epidemic. If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sins and will heal their land. We intend to continue and to conclude this recent series from Second Chronicles 7, 13, and 14 entitled, If My People... And again, if my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven, forgive their sins, and heal their lands. As we've studied together in this, just in review, if we find ourselves in famine, as you see, if locusts devour the land or heaven is shut up that there's no rain, that creates a lack of crops. And when there's a lack of crops, there's a famine in the land. If we find ourselves in a famine or if pestilence is found among God's people, we are instructed to seek Him, we're instructed to repent, and we are promised that God will hear, God will forgive, and God will heal. Just as a reminder, sometimes we experience pandemics in the world because God is judging humanity. And if anyone out there hears those words and thinks, well, God never judges humanity, there's a disconnect in that thought and what the Word of God says, both about God's nature as a holy and righteous offended judge, but also what the Bible says about humanity and our sinful nature. We have all deserved God's wrath and as a nation, if God were to judge us as America, we certainly deserve it. But at the same time, sometimes sufferings and pandemics are simply common to man. We live in a world that is afflicted with plague after plague because in the beginning of time, Adam violated the law of God. Adam transgressed God's law. And 
Since Adam transgressed God's law, a curse was placed upon him, a curse was placed upon his wife Eve, and a curse was placed upon Satan. And even the earth is cursed because of Adam's sake, and it brings forth thorns and thistles. The world is a difficult place because of the sin of Adam. So you might, as we've said already in this series, ask the question, is this a plague that God has sent? Or on the other hand, is it a plague that is common to man? And the answer to that is simply, we don't know the mind of God. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? In the Old Testament, God sent prophets. God spoke to people through prophets. But the canon, the word of God, was closed at the end of the first century with the last of the apostles, with the apostle John and the book of Revelation. And so as the canon is closed, God no longer sends word through the mouths of men. And I would just insist that if you think God has spoken audibly unto you, then you ought to take what God has said and you ought to pin it to the back of your Bible because it would carry the same weight as the word of God. And we have the warnings in Scripture as the canon closes in Revelation not to add to or take away from the Word of God. The canon is closed. God no longer speaks audibly unto men. He spoke in times past by the mouths of the prophets, but He has spoken in these last times to us by His Son. And we have the gospel accounts of His Son. We have the words of the apostles penned by inspiration of the Holy Ghost. And God no longer speaks to us in that way. And so in lack of the mind of God, we simply don't know whether these pandemics are sent by God or if they're common to man because we do not know the mind of God. But one thing that we do know, our reaction is to be the same in pandemic regardless of whether it's common to man or a judgment. We are to humble ourselves. We are to pray. We are to seek His face and we are to turn from our wicked ways. Reminding you of the past two messages, we've already considered humbling ourselves. And I remind you of the sackcloth and the ashes to throw ourselves down in uncomfortable clothing and to cover ourselves with ashes, to reduce ourselves to nothing as close to the dust of the earth that we can come to. And then we are to pray. We are to speak to God. We are to ask his counsel. We are to confess our sins to him. And we are to ask him for forgiveness. Today we come to the last two of these, and we'll consider them both in today's message. First of all, we find the admonition to seek his face. And lastly, we find the admonition to turn from our wicked ways. You'd be surprised at the number of times that I have seen these words quoted to God's people, and that last statement is left off. And I believe if we leave that last statement off to turn from our wicked ways, we handicap ourselves from remedying many of the problems in our lives today, both individually and collectively as a nation or as a region, even as a world. If I were to tell you that all you have to do is humble yourself and pray and seek His face, but I leave off turning from our wicked ways, I would not be presenting unto you this morning the full counsel of God. We are to turn from our wicked ways as we seek His face, and it is then and then only that God will heal our land to the degree that He has promised in His Word. And just as we think about that concept of healing our land, what is the true land in this world of the child of God? It isn't the United States. It isn't Canada. It isn't the Middle East. It isn't any country in Asia or Europe. The land 
that is our chief concern is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of our citizenship. We are not of this world. Beloved, I would call upon us all to seek for the kingdom of heaven, to desire the kingdom of heaven, to want to grow and expand the dominion of the kingdom of heaven in this world. We are translated into it as citizens, and then we enter into it with repentance. We should desire the kingdom of heaven to grow in this world, to thrive and to prosper. It's the only kingdom that will continue from the time it was founded to the end of the world and even into the next world. God's kingdom will last forever. Why? Because His authority and His dominion will last forever. Today we'll consider these in the opposite order than they're listed. You read them that we are to seek His face and turn from our wicked ways. But we're going to consider these backwards today. We're going to consider first turning from our wicked ways. Then we'll consider seeking His face. And the reason that I want to consider seeking His face last is because that is indeed the sweet part of today's message. Now just some thoughts up front about turning and seeking. Turning from our wicked ways and seeking God's face go hand in hand. You might refer to these as flip sides of the same coin. Or if you want to use another biblical metaphor, you have that of a double-edged sword, a two-edged sword. And so this sword cuts both directions. On one hand, we should turn from our sin. And on the other hand, we should seek God's face. Now just pondering the imagery here, a way in Scripture, the word way in the 1611 translation of the Bible means a road or a path. We use it, the word way, though we wouldn't refer to it in such a simple term in our modern language. But think about the word way and how it's attached to so many words that we use. It's a highway. It's a freeway, a pathway, a driveway, the parkway. So we use this word way every day to have reference to roads, at least as that word is connected to words that we commonly use. And as we think about a route in the South in particular, how many times... Has someone asked you, how do you go somewhere? And you say, well, this is the way that you go. And by that, as Southerners, we mean this is the route. This is the, the route that you take as you attempt to go somewhere. We know the way to church. We know the way to the grocery store. We know the way back home to mom and dad's house. We know the way. As we think about the imagery of turning from our wicked ways then, understand that the word way means road. And the word road, the word way, as it's used in Scripture many times, is metaphorical for that of a lifestyle. The Bible uses several words to depict lifestyle. One of them is conversation. Let our conversation be without covetousness. And the word conversation there is reference to the manner of our life, our lifestyle. But the word way is similar to this in that it's used to depict the path you're on in life. And so when we turn from our wicked ways, our wicked paths, our wicked roads, you're looking at a change of course, a course correction, a turning from a road that, as we'll see momentarily from Matthew chapter 7, is leading you to destruction. 
Now let's do that. Let's turn over to the book of Matthew chapter 7 and begin reading in verse 13. Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way, which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. Broad is the way that leads to destruction. Now you might wonder, what is Jesus teaching here in Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14? There are a great number of people that like to apply this to eternal life as they read this passage. But I remind you that Jesus is not speaking to unregenerates here when he says, Enter ye in at the straight gate. To whom does Jesus speak in Matthew chapter 7? He speaks to his disciples. And the lessons that we read all through Matthew 5, 6, and 7 are lessons wherein Jesus speaks to his children, his disciples. And so this is a lesson that is for us as disciples. Also, we might also point out that few there be that find it is not a statement that is true to eternal life in the grand perspective of eternal life from Scripture. Will there be only a few in heaven by the words of Jesus? No. When Jesus spoke of communion and he spoke of his blood being shed, did he say that his blood was shed, I believe in Mark's gospel, for just a few? No, he said his blood was shed for many. And so Jesus' blood is shed for many. In the book of Revelation chapter 5 and verse 9 and chapter 7 and verse 9, John in exile, on the Lord's day, much like many of you today, is caught up in a vision to heaven. And he sees wonderful, remarkable things. One of the things that John sees is the great sea of humanity, all of God's elect out of every nation, kindred, and tongue, gathered before the throne of God. He looks out and he describes them as an innumerable host of people, a people so great that no man can number them, out of every nation, every kindred, and every tongue. Does that sound like a few people to you? It isn't a few people. God's people are a great multitude. He saved many, many billions of people from their sins. And so what then does Jesus have reference to when he describes the straight gate and the narrow way that few in this world find? I believe that he's referring here to a life that is on a path framed by the Word of God, entering into a gate of discipleship so much so that your step, your walk is guided by, thus saith the Word of the Lord. Proverbs 3 is one of our favorite passages, and it speaks about if a man leans not on his own understanding, but he trusts in the Lord with all his heart, in all his ways acknowledge him, and he shall, what, direct thy paths. Now, child of God, let me ask you, do you always shun your own understanding and seek after God so that He guides your paths? No, so many times in the world we try to do it our way. We're like Frank Sinatra, I did it my way. But unlike Frank Sinatra in the chorus of that psalm, we're not happy with the places we end up when we do it our way. We find ourselves in an uncomfortable place when we do it our way. 
If we follow the course of this world, there's a way that seems right unto a man, but the ends thereof are the ways of death. We find destruction and misery on any pathway that is not the pathway of truth, the pathway of righteousness, a life of submission in every way to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Jesus here is speaking of the way of righteousness, a pathway wherein we serve and seek Him according to His commandments. We enter in to the narrow gate, the straight gate. Narrow is the way which leads unto life, and few there be that find it. You have on one hand destruction and misery, on the other preservation of life, and not only life, but life more abundant. And as we seek that pathway, we find blessing for our lives. But you see the way that Scripture uses this word way. It has reference to a path, a road. I thought this morning of the book of Jeremiah chapter 6 and verse 16, one of our favorite passages. As old school Baptists, our conviction is that we ought to serve the Lord and we ought to worship Him in our churches the way that it's depicted in Scripture. And we don't feel authorized to alter or change the structure of worship from that which was in the first century. Now, this is an Old Testament passage in the book of Jeremiah chapter 6, but notice this with me. Thus saith the Lord, stand ye in the ways. Again, ways having reference to roads. Stand ye in the ways and seek and ask for the old paths, wherein is the good way... And walk therein, and ye shall find rest for your souls. Now sadly, the nation of Israel, Judah and Jerusalem, they said, we will not walk therein. They had rejected the good way for their own wicked ways. And as Jeremiah writes in Jeremiah chapter 6, he's a pre-exile prophet of God in the Old Testament. Jeremiah speaks in a day right before they go into captivity, right before they find themselves in some of the afflictions that Solomon prayed about in 2 Chronicles chapter 5 and chapter 6. They found themselves in a very bad way, you might say. As we think about turning and seeking, you depart from one route to seek, search for something else. Back to Second Chronicles chapter 7, when we seek His face and turn from our wicked ways, we depart from one route and we enter into another route, another pathway, another road. Now, broad is the way. Humanity in general gravitates towards the broad way. And that's why it's a very wide road. It's got more lanes than downtown Atlanta or downtown Los Angeles, if you've ever had the misfortune of driving through either of those places, and I'm sure many of you have, you know exactly what I'm talking about. But you have just seas of interstate space, and you just travel on down these multi-lane roads at about 10 miles an hour because there are more people than you can fit on the road. Broad is the way that leads to destruction. Straight is the gate, which means very tight and constricted, and narrow is the way that leads to life, and few there be that find it. The world in general... The world in general, all men live in the broad way lest they take the detour into what Scripture would have us to do and how Scripture would have us to walk. So think about this concept of ways. We're on a broad interstate and the destination is destruction. 
Now, for you, it might be destruction through substance abuse. It might be destruction through lust. It might be destruction through anger. It might be destruction through jealousy. But all of those roads, you might be in one lane or another on this broad road that leads to destruction, but every single lane ends at the same destruction of life. And for the wicked, for those who do not know Christ, not only does it destroy them in this world, but they face destruction in the next world because there is a hell, there is a lake of fire, there is destruction that is coming for the wicked. As we're on the broad road in this world, in front of you is destruction through any number of vices, there's an exit sign. And you exit off of that into a better way, and as you do so, you find preservation for your life, and you find a better life that is preserved. You depart from one route to seek, that is to say, to search for something else. And what is it that we're searching for? We're searching for God's face. And we're going to ponder that concept in a moment, seeking God's face. Now, as we think about seeking God's face, to turn from wickedness without seeking God is a sort of pragmatic, humanistic moralism. In other words, for someone to say, this is right and this is wrong, and I'm going to stop doing things that are wrong, but God is nowhere in the equation. You have nothing less than some sort of a pragmatic, humanistic moralism. In other words, I think this is right, I think this is moral, I'm going to do it because it's just pragmatic to do so. And concerning that, I'll say that to turn from wickedness without the pursuit of God is dry, it is joyless, it is formal, and it is rigid. Many times it is temporary. Why is it temporary? You see, nature abhors a vacuum. As the old saying goes, when we turn from sin without replacing it with God, it simply doesn't work. I'm reminded of the teaching of Jesus in his personal ministry when he taught about the man out of whom was cast the devil. And a man has a devil cast out of him. Nothing replaces the void of this evil entity in his life. And so this devil, as it's cast out, finds seven devils worse than himself and brings them in and they move in and find the place swept and garnished and the man is worse after than he was before. Nature abhors a vacuum. We don't simply need to turn from things that are wrong as if someone nitpicks us or nags at us to do that. And I've heard preachers that come across that way. But we turn from our wicked ways to seek the face of our loving, beautiful God, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Through the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit, through the redemptive work of the Lord Jesus, giving us the right, we seek our Father's face. What is it that the Holy Spirit is sent into our hearts crying at the moment of the new birth? Abba, Father. We cry out to God, we seek His face, and here we find the beautiful nature of holiness and discipleship as it's intended. Here we find the heart understanding of one like the woman who had come in from the city and 
washed Jesus' feet with the tears of her eyes and dried his feet with the hairs of her head. We find a faith so pure that it would be like the Apostle John who at communion laid his head over on the chest of Jesus and there was nothing ill intended there. But it's simply someone who loves Jesus so much that he put his head over on another man's chest because this is your Savior. This is one whose heart yearns for that final glorious day when Jesus shall take his hands and he'll wipe away all your tears. He'll take away all pain. He'll embrace you in his arms and there with him you'll spend for all of eternity. This is joyful. It is sweet. It is beautiful. It is intimate. It is spiritual. Now as we think about this turning towards God and seeking of God's face. There's a passage that I want to give you because anytime we speak on these subjects, and it's almost unfortunate that we have to, we have to remind you of biblical sound doctrine. And so with that thought in mind, we turn to John 6, and we say that any movement towards God, any motion towards God made by a man must be by and through God's free and sovereign grace. John chapter 6 and verse 44. No man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. I challenge you to take out a lexicon and look up this word draw in the original language. What does the word draw mean? It means literally to drag to drag, and I would add, as one drags a dead body. You draw a fish out of the aquarium in a net. You draw a fish out of the sea by way of a hook or a net. You draw water out of a well with a bucket. And so are we drawn from death and sin to life in Christ. Any movement towards God must be by God's grace. We are compelled to Him. Our hearts burn within us for Him because He has drawn us into Himself. And so any movement towards God, whether the movement of the soul from death and sin to life in Christ, the drawing from death and sin to life in Christ, being made new creatures in Christ Jesus that occurs in the new birth, that is through grace. But beyond that, the drawing of our mind to Him as we study His Word through divine revelation, that movement towards God is by grace. The changing of our lifestyle to conformity to the image of His Son in this world, as we transform our lives by the renewing of our mind, as we seek to put off the old man and put on the new man, act in accordance with the divine nature that He has made us partakers of in the new birth. As we change our lifestyle, as our lifestyle moves towards His holiness, this movement is also by His grace. We can do nothing of ourselves, but we can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth us. Now we consider first turning from our wicked ways, and this will be the shorter of the two final points that we bring to you today. First of all, you might be wondering, what is a wicked way? And I want you to ask yourself that question, what is a wicked way? What 
is a wicked way defined as in the world. And we would say that a wicked way is any way, any lifestyle, any pathway that is contrary to the Word of God. Now, if the Word of God doesn't condemn something, it is not a wicked way. If the Word of God condemns something, then most certainly it is a wicked way. If God's Word condemns it as sin, then it should be handled and interpreted by us as such. We want to rightly divide the word of truth. We know there are some things in the word in the Old Testament that Israel was commanded not to do. You could look at the wearing of mixed garments. You could look at eating of things that were unclean, digging latrines outside the camp, not touching lepers, washing yourself in running waters. Those were all things that God had commanded them to do for a specific ceremonial purpose. In the New Testament, we have many of the morality of the Old Testament encapsulated in the Ten Commandments repeated to us in this new covenant. And so we understand that we rightly divide the word of truth. But if the word of God, rightly divided, calls it sin, it most certainly is sin. And that is what we are to turn from as we seek his face. Acts chapter 2, verses 37 through 40. There's a number of people, a great multitude of Jews Devout men out of every nation under heaven that are gathered before the apostles as they preach on the day of Pentecost, as the Holy Spirit fills them in a way that happened there at that day and would happen in the first century church as the apostles passed off the scene. This is no longer a part of the church culture. They spoke with languages they'd never learned. They healed the sick. They raised the dead. And I just have to laugh about this. It's funny if it, it would be funny, maybe I should say, if it wasn't so tragic and sad. As the pandemic, the real threat of death, sweeps through this country, where are all the faith healers? Where are the people who claim to have power over pandemic? Where are they? They're safe in their studios. They're not in hospitals. Speak COVID-19 into oblivion if you have that power. And if it doesn't come to be, may the world know that they're charlatans. It was amazing and laughable and remarkable, astonishing even to see that some of the more noteworthy organizations in this world who claim faith healing had to cancel their healing services because of the threat of the pandemic. If that doesn't tell you that they're charlatans, I don't know what can. These men have been filled with the Spirit in truth. And they went out and they preached the word in languages that they'd never learned because the Holy Spirit was in them. As they preached, their audience, many of them, were pricked in their hearts. And they said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Peter said unto them, Repent, repent, and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. <clears throat> now, as we think about receiving the gift of the Holy Ghost... In the first century, there was a very special manifestation, a manifest presence of the Holy Spirit that was referred to as the gift of the Holy Ghost. The apostles were given the gift of the Holy Ghost on the day of Pentecost, and yet they, through the Holy Spirit, had preached and cast out devils. Peter had confessed Christ in Matthew 16, and Jesus said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. These men had been born again for some time, and yet they received the gift of the Holy Ghost on the day of Pentecost. And this gift was a very special manifestation 
that existed around the ministries of the apostles in the first century. And these, this gift was promised unto these people at their repentance and baptism, but not only unto them, unto their children, and to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. God calls us by our spirit, and even today there is a dispensation or a portion of this manifest presence of the Holy Spirit as our comforter that we experience when we turn from our wicked ways, we confess Christ before men, we repent, and we are baptized. No, I might not have the ability to heal the sick and raise the dead and speak in languages that I've never learned, but I do have the presence of the Holy Spirit in my life as my comforter, as my leader. He even rebukes and reproves me for my sinfulness. The Holy Spirit is present with us, and it is my prayer and my advice to all of us to pray that as we begin to meet again as congregations, beloved, we ought to pray that the Holy Spirit would be sent to fill us out in our congregations once again. We're going to need the presence of the Holy Spirit as we recover from this pandemic as churches. I suppose a fitting example would be com to compare it to the stimulus package that we recently saw passed by Washington in this country. Washington looks out and they see people that are afflicted, so they increase unemployment. They give everyone in the country uh, that pays taxes a stimulus check, and they do that as a way to recover from the disaster that has been and is currently in our country. Might I say that when we meet together again, we need a Holy Spirit stimulus in our churches. And so as Jesus exhorts us to pray, we pray, Father, send us the Holy Spirit. We ask for the Holy Spirit. Give us the Holy Spirit. And we know that God will give the Holy Spirit to those that ask. And as he says that, of course, he's speaking to his churches. When his churches ask for the Holy Spirit, God will give the Holy Spirit unto them. We need the Holy Spirit. Repent, be baptized, and receive the gift of the Holy Ghost, God's felt manifest presence in your life as a disciple. With many other words that He testify and exhort, saying, Save yourself from this untoward generation. There's an untoward generation in the world around us today that we need to save ourselves from. From their influence, from their teaching, from their behavior. We need to save ourselves from this untoward generation. Peter means exactly what he says there. There are influences in the world we need to save ourselves from. Turning and repenting then is integral to the gospel. Jesus describes it in Luke's gospel as the taking up of one's cross and the following after him as a disciple. Paul described himself as one who dies daily and he exhorts us to mortify our lusts upon the earth, our members upon the earth, the lust of the body. We are to put to death by way of execution the lusts of our flesh each and every day and we are to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. As we think about turning from our wicked ways, this is of sorts a 180, if you will. We know what a 180 is. It's where you turn 180 degrees 
In the book of Ephesians, the Apostle Paul gives us a list of things that we are to turn from and a list of things that we are to turn to. And as we think about turning and seeking today, seeking and turning, we turn from our wicked ways and we seek His face. I love that Scripture doesn't just give us the negatives, but it also gives us replacements for the negatives. We're told not to do certain things, but then we're told to do other things. And so as we think about the 180 that is turning from sin and seeking His face, following Christ, Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 18, he's speaking of those Gentiles who walk in the vanity of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them. And that alienation from the life of God goes far beyond alienation from the camp of Israel, from the church of the Lord Jesus. These are people who are alienated from God. These are unregenerates. And this is through the ignorance that is in them, not only ignorance of the Word, but ignorance of God Himself. Now, why would Paul use that phrase here? Well, in the book of Hebrews chapter 8, we read that the new birth brings us into firsthand personal intimate knowledge of God. Now, we can know about God through the Word, but we know God through the new birth. And so these people are ignorant even of God Himself because they are alienated from the life of God. They are unregenerate. Their hearts are blind, who being past feeling have given themselves over unto lasciviousness to work all uncleanness with, un, with greediness. But ye have not so learned Christ. If so be that ye have heard Him. Now he doesn't say heard of Him but heard Him. What is the new birth? The Lord Jesus speaks directly to your soul, live, and you come to spiritual life in Christ. You have heard the voice of the Son of God and you live. You have passed from death unto life. John chapter 5, verses 24 and 25. Have been taught by Him. They shall all be taught of God. John chapter 6, Hebrews chapter 8. They shall all know Him from the least to the greatest as the truth is in Jesus. Now, he's going to give you an exhortation. If you have heard him, if you have learned Christ himself, and if you're born again, you have learned him. Flesh and blood hath not taught it unto you, but your Father which is in heaven, that you, beloved who have learned him, should put off the old man and put on the new man, be renewed in the spirit of of your mind, put on the new man which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. Now, this concept of old man and new man are metaphors for your life in Adam and your life in Christ. And if you're a born-again person, you have both of those natures, the nature of Adam, sin, wickedness, depravity, the nature of the flesh. But you also, beloved, have the nature of Christ. And you can read Galatians chapter 5 and learn about the fruit of the Spirit these new personality traits that we have because we've been born of the Spirit of God. We're exhorted to put off the old man, the nature of Adam, and to put on the new man. It's like taking off one garment and putting on another. And this begins setting up the concept of turning from one thing to another. Notice the list of these. First of all, in verse 25, you have lying. 
Wherefore, putting away lying, speak every man truth with his neighbor. Don't lie. Rather, what do you do? You speak the truth. You have anger. Be ye angry and sin not, is the negative. Let not the sun go down on your wrath, neither give place to the devil, is the positive. So rather than being angry, you let not the sun go down on your wrath. You deal with it that day, either by confessing it to God and repenting of it and forgiving, or by, in patience and charity, going to the person who is offended at you and expressing your grievance with them. Verse 28, you have stealing. Let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor, working with his own hands, the thing which is good, that he may give to him that needeth. So rather than stealing, we're exhorted to work. That's what God made us men folk to do. We are to work. We are to do the labor of our hands, not so we could live lavish lifestyles, but that we can give to those that have need. And so you have one thing you're commanded not to do and something that you're commanded to do. We take one away and then we apply the second. We can see that pattern of turning from one thing to another throughout Ephesians chapter 4. We have corrupt speech in verse 29. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth. Don't do that, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. And then finally, he concludes this chapter with a final do not. We don't want to be bitter. Verse 31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And instead of being that way, be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. We turn from our wicked ways to the paths of righteousness. And now today, for the sweet part of the message, if I might refer to it as such, seeking God's face. Seeking God's face. As we turn back to the book of Second Chronicles chapter 7, maybe we think on that for just a moment. Seeking God's face. To seek God. Ponder it momentarily. Imagine that thought. We seek His face. There is something personal and intimate about looking at a person face to face. In the Old Testament, we have all sorts of types and shadows. And there's a great difference in a man's image, a man's face, a man's visage is the Bible word. And a man's shadow. At the time that this was written, all they had was the shadow. Think about the glorious beauty of the first century church and how for a moment of time, not only did they seek God's face by way of the type or the shadow or by the eye of faith as we seek Him today, but they could seek the face of God as they beheld the face of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. They could behold even the face of God incarnate. We are to seek the face of God. Now, as we think about seeking the face of God, the first thing that we want to say is that it's a pursuit that will not be fully realized until the next world. We cannot and will not see as we seek His face, the face of God in this world. There's a handful of people in the Word of God who were blessed to see 
a glimpse of his glory to a greater degree than other men. When Daniel was in Babylonian captivity, the Lord Jesus revealed himself to him, pre-incarnate Christ. The description of Jesus in Daniel fits exactly with the description that John saw in the book of Revelation, chapter 1, when he beheld Christ, the Alpha and Omega. Daniel fell on his face as if he were dead, and his comeliness was turned to corruption within him. When John saw Christ in Revelation chapter 1, he fell on his face as a dead man. We simply can't behold the face of God in our flesh, in our iniquity, and live. In fact, the book of Habakkuk says that God even is of purer eyes than to behold iniquity. And so there's this void, this great wall of sin between us, our sinfulness between us and God so that we cannot view Him in our sinful condition. Praise God that the Lord Jesus now stands between us and God. The Lord Jesus is our propitiation, our mercy seat, standing between God and the law that we have broken. As an example of that, in the book of Exodus chapter 33, as Moses spoke with God, he says, God, I've led these people out. I've spoken with these people. I've dealt with them. I've been with you all of this time. Lord, I pray that you bless me to see thy glory. Now, you notice that particular petition in verse 18 of Exodus chapter 33. I beseech thee, show me thy glory. If I have found grace in thy sight, and I know you by name, God begins to speak to Moses, and he said, I will make all my goodness pass before thee, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before thee, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Paul quotes that in his thesis on God's sovereignty in Romans chapter 9. I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. It is my prerogative. But what does he say to Moses in verse 20? Thou canst not see my face, for there shall no man see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me, and thou shalt stand upon a rock, and it shall come to pass, while my glory passeth by, that I will put thee in a cliff of the rock, and cover thee with my hand while I pass by. And I will take away my hand, and thou shalt see my back parts, but my face shall not be seen. Now, God describes himself in ways that are true to us so that we can understand him. God is a spirit. They that worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. God did not have a flesh and bone and blood body until the Lord Jesus, the word, was made flesh and dwelt among us. God didn't have a physical body. There was no physicality to God. That which is physical is that which is created in the beginning of time, God creates the universe, and the second person of the Godhead took upon himself the form of flesh as he was made as the Word made flesh, the eternal Son of God made flesh. And God describes it this way so that we can understand as he uses words regarding his face or even his wings or his hands or his arms. And as he says there that he will cover 
Moses, as he passes by, and Moses will see his back parts, what he's telling him, and I like the way that Joel Beakey said in his Bible commentary, what God is telling Moses is that he will see an indirect revelation of God's nature. An indirect revelation of God's nature. By the way, being hidden in the cleft of the rock is symbolic for our relationship with Christ. Symbolic with being hidden in the Lord Jesus from that which separates us from the wrath of God and the face of God. And so I point out this account from Genesis to say that as we seek God's face, this is an endeavor that will not be fully realized until the next world. Exodus, excuse me, Genesis chapter 32. I share now with you an account of Jacob as he wrestled with God. If you'll turn to Genesis 32, verses 24 through 32. Now, as we begin to bring our thoughts to a close today, Jacob was alone, and there wrestled a man with him until the breaking of the day. I'll give you the backstory of the context here. Jacob is, as you read in verse 24, very much alone. Jacob had departed from his father Isaac. He had tricked Isaac into giving him Esau's birthright. Esau was a hairy man, and so Jacob slays a goat and puts the hair of a goat, the hide of a goat on his arms, and goes in, and Jacob has Isaac rub on his arm, and he says, you sound like Jacob, Isaac was blind, but you smell and you feel like Esau. And so Isaac gives him Esau's birthright. Isaac, being deceived, does this. Jacob, being the deceiver, the supplanter, the, the bewitcher, if you will, deceives him. And as Esau returns home, he is livid, and he sought to slay Jacob. Jacob flees. And he goes back to his old family, to a man named Laban, and there he labors for over a decade, seven years for Rachel, and he gives him Leah instead, and then he labors another seven years for Rachel, and then he labors another great portion of time, and finally he gets so tired of it that he heads back home with all of his livestock, with all of his servants, with his wives. But here he is having to go back through the land where Esau is now, in a sense, reigning, and he's afraid of him. And so as he knows that he's going to be confronted with his brother that he ran from, a brother who sought to slay him, he divides all of his things, all of his people, into two, and he sends them two different ways, and he prepares a gift to give to Esau, to soften his heart by way of the gift so that Esau would be merciful to him. And there as Jacob is alone, worried, afraid, uncertain about the future, there he wrestled with a man until the breaking of the day. Now in the book of Hosea, he's referred to as an angel with whom Jacob wrestled. Here he's referred to as a man, not only as a man, but a man who would be called God himself because Jacob has wrestled with God. And so 
I submit to you that this is one of the many pre-incarnate manifestations of the Lord Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. We refer to these as theophanies, where God Himself manifests His very own person in human form. Jacob wrestles with this man. Now, what does this have to do with seeking God's face? I'm going to share that with you in a moment. <clears throat> when he saw that he prevailed not against him, this is the man wrestling with Jacob, he touched the hollow of his thigh, and the hollow of Jacob's thigh was out of joint as he wrestled with him. And what a mystery is that? This is the God the Lord God omnipotent that reigns, that no man can say unto him, What doest thou? No man can stay his hand. And yet here Jacob wrestles with God, and God in human form prevailed not against Jacob. That is a mystery that even ought to make you and me uncomfortable if we know anything about the nature of the God of the Bible. Jacob wrestles with God. This wrestles with God, is why Jacob would be known from henceforth even as Israel, which means wrestles with God. When he saw that he prevailed not against him, and we'll explain that in just a moment, he touched the hollow of his thigh, and the hollow of Jacob's thigh was out of joint, and he wrestled with him. Why was God unable, as it were, to prevail against Jacob? Well, I will tell you, first and foremost, it was not that God was limited in power. It was not that God had less ability or power than did Jacob. In the book of Hosea, chapter 12, verse 4, in speaking of Jacob who took his brother by the heel in the womb and by his strength had power with God, yea, he had power over the angel and prevailed, why? Listen to this. This is insight that we don't have in Genesis, given to us through the Holy Spirit. He wept and made supplication unto him. He found him in Bethel, and there he spake with us. Even the Lord God of hosts, the Lord is his memorial. Why did Jacob prevail over God? As Scripture says that he did when God wrestled with him in the form of a man at Bethel because Jacob wept and made supplication with God. Or, what does that sound like? It sounds like prayer. Jacob wrestles with God in prayer. And let's continue reading. This man touches the hollow of Jacob's thighs as he wrestled with him and it was out of joint. And this will preach, no man has an experience with God and comes away unchanged. When you wrestle with God, you come away changed. Now, Jacob wrestles with him and he walks with a limp the rest of his life. When God makes an appearance into our lives by way of the new birth, we are forever changed. You might even look at some of the wicked of the Word of God who had an encounter with God. Did Pharaoh walk away from the account of his wrestling with God, as it were, in the hardness of his heart unchanged? No. No, he drowned in the depths of the Red Sea. Jacob wrestles with his angel, and 
He said, let me go for the day breaketh. The angel does and he, Jacob says to him, I will not let thee go except thou bless me. And he said unto him, what is thy name? And he said, Jacob. Now, he, this man knows his name because this is him wrestling with God. God knows his name, but he asks him, what is thy name? For the sake of what he says in verse 28. Jacob says, my name is Jacob. They're still wrestling. They fought until daylight. Thy name shall no more be called Jacob, but Israel. For as a prince hast thou power with God and with men and hast prevailed. What was his power with God? He wept and he prayed. The power that Jacob has with God is prayer. I said last week that prayer and humility are inseparably connected. And likewise is it with prayer and seeking his face. Tell me, I pray thee, thy name. And he said, Wherefore is that that thou dost ask my name? And he blessed him there. God says, Why do you ask my name? And Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, for I have, listen, seen God face to face, and my life is preserved. He saw the pre incarnate Son of God as he wrestled with him face to face, and his life was preserved. How did he preserve his life? As he saw even God's face, he did so through prayer. Now, what is the point in bringing this to your attention today? We're commanded in the New Testament, in the book of Acts chapter 17, which is a place that I encourage you to read after we close our broadcast for today. In Acts chapter 17, Paul says that we can seek him if happily we'll find him, if happily we seek after him, though he be not far from every one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. And also in Acts chapter 17, God calls on all men everywhere to repent. He calls upon men in general to turn from their sinful, wicked ways. We are to seek his face. And beloved, if you seek his face, you will find him. And we are to turn from our wicked ways. What is the point of bringing Jacob's wrestling with the angel? In this world, seeking God's face involves many times a constant wrestling even with God through prayer and weeping and supplications. This discipleship is a constant struggle in this world. We wrestle not against principalities and powers, spiritual wickedness in high places, the rulers of the darkness of this world, our own flesh, and we are to labor as Jacob wrestled with God in prayer and supplication and weeping to God we seek God and we turn from our wicked ways. May we seek His face. May we desire to be as close to Him, wives as you are to your own husbands right this very moment, children as you are to your parents. May we seek to see His face. Let's read Second Chronicles chapter 7. If my people which are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray... And seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then will I hear from heaven and forgive their sin. 
and will heal their land.